0: Welcome to How to Decorate from Ballard Designs, a podcast all about the trials and triumphs of decorating and redecorating your home. Each week, they'll help you unleash your inner decorator.
1: I'm Caroline. I write the How to Decorate blog. And I'm Taryn, and I'm a product designer. And I'm Karen. I head up Ballard's branding team. (laughs) We're your hosts.
0: Join the expert team at Ballard Designs for tips, tricks, and tales from interior designers, stylists, and other talents in the design world.
1: Plus, we'll answer a listener question at the end of the show. So, don't forget to send them to podcast at ballarddesigns.net.
0: I guess we love answering them. And now, on with the show. Okay, so our guest today is has been in the antiques business for over 30 years with her shop in Nashville, Tennessee at Debbie Matthews Antiques and Design. And in 2012, she opened the interior design portion of the business. Debbie, thank you so much for having us. I mean, thank you so much for joining <laughs> us.
2: <laughs> thank you for having me. I'm excited to be
3: here with you. So, let me ask this, Debbie. So, what started first for you the the antique business or the design business and then why did one spur the other
2: um well that's that's a great question. I actually developed a love and a passion for antiques as a young child, which is probably unusual, but I accompanied it's actually not okay <laughs> be honest <laughs> okay.
3: when you guys agree, Taryn and Caroline, like we've had so many guests on who, as a we, child
0: mm-hmm. were
1: it's still not the norm of people Building in their it own furniture
3: a, and stuff. Yes. Well, yes. I would say yes. It's not the norm in the world in general, but for the people we get on uh-huh. here, it's like, yes. oh, yes. I designed my own room. Like Vern, yep. Yeah. I designed my own bedroom furniture. My mother had it built for me. I'm like what? <laughs> okay. So, <laughs> well,
2: I was one of those children who okay. <laughs> um, was <Debbie> and Vern. <laughs> taken to garage sales, estate mm-hmm. sales, auctions, antique stores, um, swap meets. My maternal grandmother was just obsessed with the treasure hunt and finding beautiful things. And then lo and behold, um, our neighbors moved in um, when I was four or five and the daughter became my best friend and her mother was also an antique freak. And it was kind of fun because I had two very important women in my life, both with differing tastes for antiques. But I felt like I had just this incredible education. I learned so much just by spending hours and hours with them. And it was such a special time. When I look back now, I mean, those were some of my favorite childhood memories. I know many people would say, I can't think of anything worse than being tracked for (laughs) antique stores.
1: But, you know, as a
2: kid, they would almost make a game of it. You know, there are a lot Mm -hmm. of those vintage um, Little Red Riding Hood cookie jars. So how many can you find today when we're out and about? Or, you know, so they somehow captured my attention and also taught me a lot about what to look for when you're buying a piece, how to, you know, a lot of it was just hands-on and Mm -hmm. um, learning to do a little bit of refinishing on my own. And so that just really instilled in me, I guess, the thrill of the hunt, which is, you know, just almost addicting because I'm always scanning, looking for that next treasure or that diamond in the rough. And um, so it just stuck with me. So really, the antique side came first. And um, I was working after I graduated college, and I decided to get an antique booth. And so that was my first foray into retail.
1: (laughs) Oh, my God. Do you remember what was in your first booth?
2: Oh, Little Red Riding Hood cookie jars. Lots of them. I didn't sell <laughs> Little Red Riding Hood cookie jars, uh, but I, to this day, I mostly sell um, 18th and 19th century English, French, Italian, and German antiques. Um, my taste maybe has changed a little bit through the years, but at the core, that's who, who I am. And even my first antique booth that would have been very well represented. I had a lot of English and French. I now sell some Italian, some German, so I have, and some Swedish pieces. So I, I have ventured out um, a little bit from 30 years ago, but um, <laughs> I just really sort of came into my own with that first booth, and then I would get a larger booth. And then people sort of said, wow, I like what she has. Maybe she can find me a brank front for my dining Ah, room. And so then people started asking me to search and hunt for them. So that's Mm -hmm. really when I sort of ventured into design, sort of through the back door. Um, And then um, one of the homes that I lived in that I did myself was on a big home tour in Nashville. And then more people started asking me for help. Um, so it just all evolved, but what's really interesting to this day is that I still get a lot of design clients because they have purchased antiques from me. Mm -hmm. And then of course Mm -hmm. it's the other way as well. Somebody who comes to me for design comes into my showroom and then they end up buying a lot of antiques. So really one feeds the other, which has been a really interesting, um, Outcome of having both businesses. One of
3: the quotes on your side is that you feel like every room should have an antique in it.
2: I do. I do. I feel very strongly about that. I feel like there's just something forgiving about an antique. I think so many people believe that antiques, oh my gosh, I would never have an antique. It's fragile. It's breakable. You can't touch it, sit anything on it. Mm -hmm. And I really believe almost the opposite. Most of the pieces I carry are 200 years old. And I tell people, it survived this long. You know, there yeah. wasn't air conditioning yeah. or, you know, temperature controlled. Mm-hmm. And look at it. I mean, mm-hmm. it may not be perfect, but that allows you to be somewhat imperfect in other items that you might have in that space. And yeah. to me, it's some of the little imperfections that give that piece character and really give your room um, depth and a richness that it's really hard to get otherwise. Um, I don't necessarily think every piece in the room should be an antique, but I do tell all my clients, I think every room needs at least something antique, something that's been collected and treasured, Um, whether it's a family heirloom or something that you have found treasure hunting.
0: One thing I saw on your site was that you enjoy and are always open to um, using items that the your client might already have and sort of re, you know, reimagining them in different ways. So I was wondering if you could kind of share with us any tips or strategies that you use to help clients sort of fall in love again with something that maybe they feel like they've, has run its course in their house and they're not ready to, they want to reimagine it.
2: I do think uh, many people work with me because I am not opposed to pieces that they've had that have been in their family. I I have one client that she inherited from her husband's side of the family a table um, from the Civil War, and there were actually like bullet holes in it. And so cool, which is so cool. And it's not like the table itself is some gorgeous piece, but it's got such history. Yes. And so of course we had to use it. And so one of the things um, that I tell clients is there's a way to make some of these pieces feel fresh and new. You know, sometimes somebody might even have a Victorian settee and, and Victorian is not necessarily in vogue right now, but if right. you use, you know, a more transitional fabric on it, Um mm-hmm. It can really change the look. I mean, you can paint the piece. You can use Mm -hmm. a contrasting gimp or welt. There's so many ways to make an old piece look current. You can take an antique chest, put a more transitional or contemporary lamp on it, or a contemporary piece of art above it. So there are many ways to incorporate those family treasures. into your everyday um, decor, without mm-hmm. having it look like you live in a museum, <laughs> and yeah. no, nobody wants to to have no. that.
3: Well, Debbie, what items do you have in your home that you hope your children are going to cherish and take onto their home and live with?
2: Yes. Um, well, one of my favorite pieces, and it's just kind of a funny story, is close to thirty years ago. Um, I went to the Paris flea market for the first time. And my husband and I were there. Is he as patient
3: in the flea market as you are? Does he have um, the same passion? Probably not. <laughs> <laughs> no. Yeah, there, well, luckily, though, in the Paris flea market, there are plenty of places to park a husband where he can drink.
2: Yes, exactly. Right? <laughs> Smart. Hang out <on> here, honey. <laughs> I came across this beautiful 18th century tapestry. It was 14 feet wide, by, I think it's nine wow. feet tall. It's big. And you know, I looked at it trying to communicate with this gentleman in French and trying to get the history of it. And I eyed it and he was telling me, you know, what it would cost. And I, oh, I thought, oh, that's just a lot of money, especially for me 30 years ago. Mm-hmm. Um, So didn't buy it, but it just weighed on me. So then um, we took the Metro back, tried to negotiate a little further with them, um, got the price down. And then he said, well, you need to meet me with cash um, in the lobby of your hotel. I'll bring it, but you have to have cash. So we had to go to um, the bank to get, this much cash because i think even at the time it was it sounds like
3: a drug deal
2: (laughs) (laughs) like meet me in the lobby Like ten thousand dollars in cash Uh uh-uh we had to ride the metro and i thought oh my gosh this is kind of scary so we mm, had the cash like packed all over our bodies (laughs) anyway the long and the short of it is i have that tapestry to this day (laughs) we um you're alive, i'm alive no. to, I'm alive to tell the story. We put the tapestry in a huge duffel bag, carried it on the plane. I mean, Smart. it was like a dead body. You know, this Smart. huge duffel bag. You can't check it. Yeah. So, imagine
3: if you'd lost that thing. I know,
2: it. I know. Uh-uh. Well, and of course, I got it to the U.S. and it appraised for, you know, two or three times what I had paid for Nice. It. And so I've always said I can't live in a house that doesn't have a wall big enough to accommodate this tapestry. I love it. <laughs> and so it's been with me ever since. And I've I've talked to my children about it and I said, you know, this has such a story. One of you is going to have to to take this and come to find out they they all like it. So that's good. Yeah. So that's really one of my very favorite pieces just because the story is kind of funny and
0: we felt like we were criminals or something <laughs> with all this <laughs> cash. Well, I'm sure something of that size, but it probably it's such a statement that it it is. You know, oh. I you imagine. Yeah.
2: Yeah, the first wow. house it went in, it was in a big stairwell, big two-story stairwell. Um, it's now in my living room. And I mean, I just thought, okay, this was just meant to be. Because literally, it takes up almost an entire living room wall. It was it was like it was made for it. Wow. So mm-hmm. anyway, so that was just really fun. But I yeah. do have several pieces that it would just be really hard for me Um to part with or to think that my children will part with, I have a beautiful um French oil painting that's that's good size as well and and that's just one of my very favorite pieces it it's they're like my children, <laughs> yeah, I yeah, can't yeah. imagine you know some it. pieces I would have no difficulty parting with, but there are probably four or five that I would really struggle. And I know that sounds materialistic, but I guess it, that was when, it's, question, your, when like, it's your what? business.
0: <laughs> so I saw on your site, I thought this was so interesting that you said one of the pieces that you always are looking for and that you always have in your shop is a writing desk. Yes. Yes. And I thought that was such an interesting um, choice because, you know, I would assume it was be a great chair or, you know, a dining table or something that you really kind of think of as like, I'm going to get a, an antique, but it was a writing desk. So can you explain to us why you love a writing desk and why your clients seem to love a writing desk?
2: Yeah, it's, it's funny. I sell a lot of writing desks, but I also use a lot of writing desks in my um, design projects because they're so versatile. Um, I often recommend to my design clients, if, if I'm working on a guest bedroom, I always say we need to try to incorporate a writing desk, because today most house guests travel with a laptop. And it's really, really nice for them to have a place to sit, at their laptop where they can get some work done or even just, you know, respond to emails, whatever it is that they need to do. So we'll often use a writing desk as a combination desk slash bedside table on one side.
0: Yeah. I always love that. look. a great idea,
2: you know, a more traditional bedside table or skirted table on the other side. Um, So that's one place that I'll often use them. Um, sometimes just in the window of a guest bedroom. Um, I have another client that we just ordered a writing desk. It's not an antique um, for this particular space, but it's um, the guest room was shared with, um, it's a Jack and Jill situation. And so she said, I really want my female guests to feel like they have a place that they can sit privately to do their makeup. So it's a writing desk slash vanity. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So that's worked out really well. I'll also use writing desks in, um you know, family room, living room, because it seems like somebody's always wanting to sit there with, again, yeah. a laptop or um, to work a puzzle. So they're just right. really versatile.
3: It's one of those things you could buy. Um, you know, for a very specific reason, when you're 30, and then when you're 60, have put it in five places in your home. Exactly. You know? Like you just reuse it and use it. Put it in the entry. Put it by the bedside, like you're saying. It's, it's just a super, um, uh, you know, easy to a piece to find. A easy, <laughs> a piece to find an easy place <laughs> for.
2: <laughs> too many peas. <laughs> Depending upon the size, I'll sometimes use them as a sofa back table. Yes mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I, right. I completely agree with yeah. what you're saying, Karen, especially some of my younger clients um, who are wanting to learn like I've had several people ask me, okay, just starting out buying furniture and I want to invest in several quality pieces. you know what are your the top pieces um, that I should start with? And usually I will say a beautiful chest and a writing
1: desk. That's okay. okay. So that's great to know. That's a good question. We should have had on our list beautiful to ask chest. you. Okay. okay. When you say chest, you mean, do you mean something low? Do you mean something high? It's drawers. Typically not, you know, for one of the
2: first pieces to invest in, I wouldn't say a chest like a bedside chest, which would be more like 30 inches tall. Usually this piece would be more like 36 to 42 inches tall. Um, One of the pieces in particular that I'll tell clients to invest in is maybe like a Louis Philippe chest because the lines are really clean and simple and it mixes well with more transitional and contemporary pieces. And those do tend to be a little bit taller. So... um, you know, that's you. That's usually one of the very first pieces I'll suggest. And that's yeah. the
3: same kind of versatility as that desk. You could use it, you know, in your dining room for your bar. You could use it in your bedroom, in your living room. You could put a TV on entry. it. Entry. Yeah, entry. Yeah, agreed.
2: Yeah, there, there'll always be a place for it. Um. So, yeah, that's usually the number one piece I, I tell folks to start with.
0: Yeah, I think that's great, especially for people listening, just to – kind of have, you know, somewhere to start. Exactly. A goal. All
1: right. I know you love Louis and you, you, you talk about that and speak to that, but is there a certain item that you always, you personally, and not that because it sells, but because you love it, that you're always drawn to when you're shopping. When you say Louis, you mean an era, like a French, um, like a Louis Philippe. Of French antique. So, yeah.
2: yeah, I wrote a blog about my love affair with Louis Philippe. Obviously, the furniture that we're alluding to was during the reign of King Louis Philippe. And he sort of took furnishings back to more simple lines. You know, everything had been so opulent and grandiose. And so there was just this huge revolt because, you know, most of the um, kingdom was poor and then everybody was living large, you know, in Versailles. And so King Louis-Philippe came along and he said, all right, we've got to pair things back a little bit. So that was reflected in furniture style and design. And so I had mentioned earlier that I really like the clean and simple lines of Louis-Philippe chess. Sometimes they don't even have hardware, you just open it with the key. Many times they'll have a marble top, but the lines are so simple that they work great with transitional or more contemporary artwork and accessories. So I always have several Louis-Philippe chests in inventory, and then I have two Louis-Philippe chests in my own house. So... Um, <laughs> And then also, Louis Philippe Mears, I like for that same reason. There's not a lot of the ornate curly cues and um, decoration. They're just very clean, typically arched at the top. Sometimes they'll be a great key design or a vine design or a little bit of beading, but in general, they're very simple. And um, again, I personally have a Louis Philippe mirror, but I also sell a lot. Mm-hmm. And the silvered mm-hmm. ones I use a lot. And wait, just to clarify for listeners, Louis Philippe mirrors are the ones that have
3: sort of a, a wide edge, I'd say like a three inch edge, right? And then they're square at the bottom and they go up like a rectangle, but they they have a soft edge mm-hmm. at the top. So there are rounded corners at the top and then square at the bottom. And you guys, now that I've said this to you, you're going to see them everywhere. If you haven't yeah. noticed them before, they are this like most elegant, beautiful mirror ever.
2: <laughs> well, and what I love mm-hmm. about them so much is typically the finish is, you know, it could be water gilt. So it's just the finish itself is so beautiful that they don't need a lot of decoration. Or sometimes, like I, I was saying in bathrooms, I'll use the silvered Louis mm-hmm. Philippe mirrors. But again, they're just very simple, but yet so sophisticated. And you're right. The finish on them
3: is mm-hmm. the selling point. I mean, it is. Yeah. It's gorgeous.
0: Yeah. Yeah. It's hard well, to replicate. A- I also feel like oftentimes they're oversized, uh, not oversized, but you know they're like a little bit overscaled on whatever they are on. Mm-hmm. So that helps, even though it's simple, it really makes a statement. Exactly. Right. Yeah.
2: yeah. So those are just are. always a favorite. And that's not to say that I don't sell ornate mirrors because I do have some ornate mirrors, but to me, a staple is always having Louis-Philippe mirrors in inventory because they just, they work well in so many different locations in the home. And again, just one of those pieces that I think can instantly elevate a room, whether it's a powder room or a bedroom Mm -hmm. or the entrance hall.
3: Well, I think it's the kind of piece that we talk, everyone uses the word transitional so much. Um, but it's the kind of piece where if you have a super traditional home and you put that in there, it's going to make it feel a little bit more current. And then if you, you could also put it in a home that feels modern and it's going to take it the other way a little bit. It's, it it has its toe dipped in both worlds Mm. in a nice way because it's so sleek, but still yet so classic.
0: I feel like if you were to Google like modern Parisian apartment. Oh, it's in every, every one. Single one every single one has it. Yeah. Even not modern. Any Parisian apartment has this. <laughs> I agree. Yeah. Well, it's like, well, <laughs> every every I'm thinking restaurant. of like, <laughs> I'm thinking of like those that, that look that's like very black and white with like a, a mix of, um you know, contemporary and antique, but like they all have that mirror.
1: Yeah, true. True. Do you do any refinishing yourself, Debbie? I really don't. Um. I can do a little bit
2: of touch up and we have a few little magic potions at the office, mm-hmm. but I have to say that. By I, that, do you mean a Sharpie? What do you mean by <laughs> <the> magic <laughs>
1: potions? <person? Yeah>. Tell <laughs> me what you mean.
2: <laughs> it's a brown Sharpie and a black yeah. one. I'm not kidding y'all. I use that.
1: <laughs> you know,
2: old English or, you know, scratch yeah But it's, it's rare that I'm actually doing that. I have this lady, the furniture doctor, and she Uh can work magic on pieces. You know, so many antiques, um, you know, maybe they sat near a window and one side is sort of bleached out because of the sun, but the other side looks perfect. And so I can call her and say, just make it look cohesive. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Yeah, Blend it all together. And she is so good. And I've known her for 25 years that I really, after you know, I, I buy a number of pieces, I'll call her and I'll just say, work your magic.
3: (laughs) Let me ask this. What about on upholstery? If you have old pieces that you're going to recover, but you feel like the frame is a little rickety and I'm I'm asking for myself because I have this (laughs) Um, and, and I had a reupholster, but my upholsterer wasn't the type who was like, Oh, I can reinforce the frame and like, fix it all. Is there, do I need to look for a special kind of person who can really make that amazing or uh, help me? What do I do? Yeah.
2: And, and so that would be a different person. Mm -hmm. Um, so this person that I'm talking about, the furniture, she really just works on the finish. She can do a little reinforcing. She can actually replace veneer that's missing on pieces. But wow. she's not my go-to person if something really needs um, a leg fixed. Uh-huh. Like mm-hmm. structural structural integrity. Okay. Yes. So that's somebody else. Um, and so I do have that person as well. My upholsterer can do some of that. But for pieces that need a lot, I I have someone else. Okay. It's almost like three different people.
0: Yeah. That
1: makes Mm -hmm. sense, though. You have your specialty.
0: Agreed. So, obviously, I understand when you might want to make changes like those, but are there ever times where you don't want to touch a piece and you are sort of, you know, Uh, because you talk about the patina and the, you know, the use being part of the charm of the antique. So, um, how do you know when you shouldn't touch it at all? So,
2: there's a fine line. um, And some of that's a judgment call. Some of it's just knowing who my buyer is. And so if a, if I purchase a piece that's missing some veneer, I'll definitely get that veneer replaced because I know nobody's really going to buy it with you know a big piece of veneer missing on the front. Some of the scratches, it depends on how, how bad they are. I will have sanded and polished, but there are certain things and signs of wear that I really like leaving. Um, An example is I just bought this beautiful old English um, secretary and you could see right around the hardware, which is just this beautiful old brass hardware um, that the, the wood finish is lighter. And that's because over years people had, um, you reached for the hardware, and their hands had touched, and I thought, you know, that's kind of special. That's just mm-hmm. showing that, you know, human hands have touched this, almost mm-hmm. like a banister on a staircase. You know, yeah. some of that where it's a little bit worn and um, the patina gets richer because of the oil in your hands. Some of that, I think, it's it's nice to leave that. I don't necessarily yeah. think the piece needs to be perfect. Um, Mm -hmm. as Karen was saying, I like the idea of it being structurally sound, if it's a chair or something like that, I think, I think you need to, um, fix that so that it can be functional, but many antiques, if you look at the sides, depending upon where the piece sat in somebody's home, you know, usually there'll be a side that is closer to a window. So if there's going to be a crack, in the furniture, it's usually on one of the sides and I'm okay with that. Some people want to fill that in, but if it's not that big to me, that's just okay. You know, I'm 200 years old and this (laughs) is just one of the signs of that. Mm -hmm. So it's kind of knowing my market. I know some people will not buy a piece if it's not perfect. And I, I can't tell you how many conversations I've had with shoppers and they'll say, Oh, well, I love this piece, but it's got, you know, this little discoloration. And I'm like, well, yeah, it's 250
0: years old. I mean, <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. Where are they buying these perfect antiques and that have not been and scratched? Then, and
3: again, I don't understand why we want something perfect. You mm-hmm. know, I get it if it's, you know, it's straight off the factory line and you just got it out of the box and the styrofoam and all that stuff. But if you understand that it's lived with families and people and provenance and all of that for all the, and all of those right. things, touch it and put a special history energy in it. Yeah, there's something there <laughs>
2: that is bigger than me and I want to embrace it. Mm-hmm. And that's, that's kind of my feeling, you know, sometimes when I buy a piece, I, and I know this maybe sounds crazy, but I, I really think about, oh gosh, where has this piece been? Was it in mm-hmm. a farmhouse, you know, in the South of France and then, and then where to it go? Did it go to Paris? And then when did it come to the United States? And, you know, where has it lived? I once bought um, a writing desk. And it had a little heart carved in the top. So it wasn't like part of the design of the writing desk, but somebody had carved a heart. And I just thought,
3: Some eight-year-old whose mother smacked him upside the head. I
0: know. And I thought, okay, but that's (laughs) That's the
3: most
0: precious
2: thing. I would never want that removed. Mm -hmm. Or sometimes I'll buy pieces, again, a secretary or a writing desk. And you know exactly where the inkwell was because there are some ink spots around it. And to me, mm-hmm. that is just part of the history of the piece. Right, you know, right. somebody sat there and penned a letter. And, you know, you just think about, oh, gosh, you know, were they writing a love letter? What mm-hmm. what happened at this piece? Yeah. So I, I, I do. I kind of imagine what that story is um, behind the piece, where it's been. And so I feel like I almost have this responsibility to maintain some of that history and not just erase
0: it. Mhm. Mhm. Definitely.
1: You know how you when you go as I feel like as when I go to get my oil changed and they tell me the 12 things that I also need done I'm like I don't know enough. Um to like feel taken. And so I just say yes or no, depending on what mood I'm in. Um, so speaking of, <laughs> um, value of the actual antiques, how do we know? I know there's a certain, okay, I just love it. And you know, the price matches my love for it. Um, but well, my budget or, or your budget. Yes. Mm-hmm. But is there any thing we can do to give us, you know, so that we feel comfortable buying these beautiful, expensive pieces?
2: Yeah, I think it's almost like anything else. You really do need to do a little bit of research. And um, I certainly do. I mean, I'm studying all the time. Um, my husband just makes fun of me because it doesn't matter where we travel. I'm looking up mm. where where is there an antique store or something <laughs> like that. Because when I travel, I like to see, you know, what are the prices in this area? So, you know, I know Mm -hmm. what pieces sell for in Nashville. Maybe Mm -hmm. I know in Atlanta, but I don't necessarily know in Maine or, Mm -hmm. you know, Connecticut. So I feel like I'm always studying. I, oh, it, it doesn't matter where, where we travel. I am on the hunt And I almost always have to bring an extra suitcase because I'll find little (laughs) treasures. But that's something everybody can do. You know, if you're not always going to antique malls or estate sales, so you don't have a good sense, you can certainly go online, whether it be on eBay and see what certain things are selling for there. Or on Cherish, Um, you know, it's really important, I think, to do your research. I mean, of course, if you absolutely love a piece, then, you know, and you can afford it, well, then maybe right. you just go for it. But um, I really am very careful when I buy about what I spend on an individual item, obviously, because I then have to turn around and sell it. I'm always doing the math in my head. Okay, if I buy it for this, and then I've got to get it recovered, or I need to, you know, get a little touch up, or if I buy an antique light fixture, I'm just instantly calculating, okay, this is what it's going to cost to get it rewired. This is what a shade costs. Is there enough margin in there for me to mark it up and actually make a profit? Mm -hmm. And so um, I, I have to definitely think before I before I buy anything. So
3: Debbie, you, you said you used to work with First Dibs and now you sell your things on Cherish. So for people who aren't familiar with these sites, tell us why, like, all right, if I'm on Cherish, people like you have your amazing stuff on there. Is it sort of just like a group of people like you selling your, you know, like, are you? is it like the Amazon of antiques? It's kind of what I'm getting at. Like all the coolest, best stuff is there for me.
2: Yes. So each of these online selling platforms is a little bit different and the vetting process is a little different. So I can't say that they're the same. I would say the most rigorous vetting process was First Dibs. Mm -hmm. And um, you go through multiple interviews and you submit a portfolio. And I really enjoyed my time on First Dibs. Um, I sold to a lot of well-known designers all across the country so here I am in Nashville but I have you know designers famous designers in Los Angeles buying Mm -hmm. from me Mm -hmm. or from New York City so that was the great thing about first Mm -hmm. dibs is because um you know the whole it's it's international I had people from Europe reaching out about pieces
3: so it's like creme de la creme
2: yes okay what about people who are
3: half and half? Like I'm like skim milk, right? I'm not crumb to the crumb.
2: <laughs> <laughs> so the thing I liked um, about Cherish, and there was a time I was on both First Dibs and Cherish, and I think a lot of First Dibs folks are also on Cherish, is that they're a little bit more loose in their guidelines. And... um you're not necessarily paying rent unless you're selling items. And um, so it just was a better fit for how we work. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's I made the transition about a year and a half ago to just selling exclusively on Cherish. And then we also sell off of our website and our um, Instagram. That's Debbie Matthews Antiques.
3: Your Instagram is great. I will oh, say thank mm-hmm. you. So inspirational mm-hmm. and really cool product. I encourage everybody to get on there and check that out.
0: Yeah.
3: Yeah. Really yeah. good stuff. I went down like quite a few rabbit holes in the last few days.
2: Oh, good. <laughs> well, one of my goals is through the antique Instagram, which is new. And, um, so we've really just gotten that started, um, just in 2020, which has been kind of crazy, but, um, we really want to educate people about antiques. I want mm-hmm. antiques to, to feel more approachable right. for people because I think so many people, like I was saying earlier, just have the stigma like, ooh, antiques are so expensive or they're so delicate and fragile. And it really is just not the case. In, in so many situations, um, when I'm speccing items for d- my design clients, you know, the antique light fixture is probably less than many of the new light fixtures right. yeah. that I would yeah. spec. So, I think there's just this huge misconception. And like I said, many of the pieces I buy are probably more sturdy than new pieces that you can right. find today. So, mm-hmm. anyway, that's just one of my personal goals is to really dispel some of those myths about antiques so that people feel more comfortable in purchasing them.
3: Well, and Debbie, too, when you were saying that your mother was, you know, an avid hunter and then your, I think you said, neighbor who moved yeah, in? Yeah, my
2: grandmother and my neighbor. Yes. Your maternal grandmother and yes. your neighbor. Yes. Neighbor, I'm
3: sorry. But you also said they both had such different uh, I, you didn't use the word aesthetics, but they were both looking for very different things. And when you when you were talking about antiques and how people kind of get this thing in their mind that they're expensive, I think they also get in their mind that they're one look. No. Right?
2: <laughs> exactly. It's
3: all over the place. Everyone needs to open their minds to the fact that, you know, antiques are not just, you know, a Louis style chair or something ornate or gilded. It is all over the place.
2: Well, and one of the things that I love is I feel like sort of that English style has not been as popular um, in recent years, you know, sort of that Queen Anne or Chippendale. And I think with um, so many people loving the bamboo look, that looks great with Chippendale, and that's kind of making a resurgence. Um, I also feel like A lot of the more simple, like shaker style and Windsor chairs, we're seeing a huge resurgence in that. So there are so many styles, um, you know, that go from very rustic and primitive and simple to the more ornate, um, you know, French or mula mounted, you know, very formal pieces. So they're not all formal. They're not all delicate and fragile. Um, You know, farmhouse style is so in right now. And there are just wonderful, primitive options out there. You know, big farm tables, you know, they can last for years and years. Um, So, yeah, it's really just about educating yourself.
0: Exactly. Yeah. Ladies, I think it's time to do a decorating dilemma. Let's solve some problems. (laughs) (laughs)
1: Let's do our own. (laughs) Yay! Okay, so the first one is from Cheryl, and she writes, Our home, which is an open concept kitchen, breakfast, and family room, is painted in Benjamin Moore, Pittsfield, Buff. Years ago, I painted the mantle and cubbies a rich brown. Now I'm wondering if instead should should I paint an accent wall, the fireplace wall, or not? The rug is 9 by 12 that was handed down from my husband's mom, and we have used it as the focal point in our family room. Thanks for your suggestions.
3: Okay, so really she's just asking about whether she should paint her wall. So let me just describe her room briefly. So it is an open concept. Um, The photos are looking from the kitchen into her family room. We're looking over her island, which appears to be granite, hardwood floors. Um, You're looking into a wall that has a fireplace uh, and and a slanted wall. So it's a wall that kind of, I mean, slants up. Right, so it's it's not, <laughs> it's not a straight it's not a straight ceiling. The ceiling slants up, yeah, and um, where the the fireplace kind of butts out from the wall, it, uh, the well the fireplace butts out from the wall, and the wall above it also butts out, and then the 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 wall recesses behind, and there are flanking windows on either side, and then to the right of the fireplace, just on one side, there are cubbies, and the cubbies on the right, she has painted a brown, and then the 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 little, uh, not sliver, but space of uh, wall above the fireplace that kind of juts out from the wall, she has painted the same sort of cocoa brown color as she's painted these cubbies on the right. And everything else is painted like a sort of a tan buff color. And so she's saying, should I paint the whole fireplace wall this accent color or what do you think she should do with her paint?
2: All right. Well, I love talking about accent walls. So I was excited, excited to see this question. (laughs) Um, And this room uh, in particular, we're talking about paint color, but we can also do accent walls in a different texture. You know, some people will panel one wall or wallpaper one wall or tile one wall. So It it doesn't necessarily just have to be paint. But in this situation, um, as Karen described it, the one focal point wall with the fireplace and the cubbies has two different paint colors. And I definitely think that she should paint the whole wall one color for a number of reasons. One, I think that wall will be more impactful but also more cohesive. I think it's a little patchwork when you have two colors on
0: that wall. Plus a trim color and the surround. Yes. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So it's kind of like four colors. You know, when, when I think
2: about an accent wall, the way to really make that be the focal point is when The adjacent walls are all very neutral so that there is contrast with that one wall. And so I think it's just really going to be more of a focal point if that whole wall is painted that one color. The other thing is I think it will also highlight this rug that she inherited that is so beautiful. It's an oriental rug. And I think you will notice the pattern on that rug so much more when that Focal point wall is all painted one color. I don't think it will detract as much from that rug, so I, I think, you know, nothing can transform a space like paint, and I think this is one of those situations that yeah. it's going to look so different if it's painted all one color. I right, agree. Debbie, let me ask you this. She has a um, piece of uh,
3: molding or trim above, like it becomes her mantle above the fireplace. Should that be an alternate color or should that be the color of the wall?
2: Um, Well, in looking at the at the photo, you know, I could be I could be fine just leaving that the trim color, because really mm-hmm. what I should have said right now is there are three colors going on with that trim color. Um, but I think if the rest of the trim in the room is the trim color, the mantle will stand out by leaving it the trim color. Mm-hmm. So it's just, okay. yeah, the wall and the cubbies all being the same. Mm-hmm. And the fireplace? No, leaving the fireplace like the, fireplace, the fireplace? trim color. Okay, the yes. fireplace
3: and the trim stay, yes. and then the wall and the cubbies do all one color. Okay, got yes. it.
0: It kind of looks to me like the fireplace is stone, but it is hard yeah, to tell. Yeah, and I couldn't tell you know, brick, that exactly tell. Yeah.
2: from the photo. So yeah, that was one thing I couldn't I couldn't discern, but I do feel that at least the wall and cubby should all be one color. Um, and again, whether it's stone or trim is just painted, I kinda like that fireplace actually standing out.
3: And Debbie, do you like the rich brown she has as her
2: accent color? I kind of do. I do. I think it's pretty. Yeah. I think yeah. it's pretty I with like the it. rug and really everything. It's nice and cozy and inviting. Okay, so. so that whole wall go rich brown. Hmm. Yes. Ooh. Excellent. Okay. Question
1: two. Uh, thank you, Cheryl. Uh-huh. Great <laughs> question. <laughs> Was a great question. All right, so the next one is from Jamie, and she says, Hi, ladies. I inherited this bone china. I don't love it by itself, but I would like to use it up a little by adding other pieces. However, I'm at a loss. A lot of the prettiest china has gold, whereas mine has silver. Can I use gold and silver? I'm pretty open to anything. I particularly love all the blue and white and the hunt and horse china, similar to what James Farmer uses. Florals are great, too. Also, are there rules for mixing china? Should the dinner plate be darker? Any suggestions? Thank you, Jamie. So she has a beautiful, super simple white bone china
3: with it. Just a simple silver edge, and it is gorgeous. But can can she mix it with
2: gold? What should she do? I say absolutely she can mix it with gold. And um, one of the reasons I say this is because... Many people, including myself, who have China with a gold rim, have silver flatware. And so we're already mixing silver and gold. Look at you. Oh, Debbie, you just cracked the case. Yeah, so (laughs) absolutely you can mix silver and gold. And then I I also think about many of the kitchens that we're designing right now, You we'll have a lot of stainless steel appliances, but I'll still use brass hardware and plumbing fixtures. So mm-hmm. I actually really like mixing metals or mixing yeah. silver and gold. I don't really like going beyond two metals, um, You know, like gold, silver, and copper. That might mm-hmm. be a bit much. Mm-hmm. But silver and gold together, I think, work really well. And as far as there being any hard and fast rules about which plate should be the color, the way I sort of look at a tablescape, and I absolutely love creating tablescapes, is I look at it like you're creating a painting. And so if, if you wanted to serve off of the white plate, which I think sometimes food looks beautiful on a white plate, then maybe what you do is you start with a colorful tablecloth or a colorful placemat. And so then you just begin to create this painting by layering different pieces. So say you have a beautiful green tablecloth and then you have your white dinner plate. Maybe what you do is you find salad plates. She mentioned that she loves blue and white. Blue and white would be beautiful on the white plate and the green tablecloth. And so you just continue to layer with your napkins, with your glassware um, and your flowers. And it doesn't even bother me to mix patterns. So maybe your salad plate Is one pattern of blue and white, but then when you serve dessert, it's another blue and white pattern. I think it actually makes it really interesting. Um, And the other thing I like to point out too, um, and I think this year maybe it's more important than other years, you know, we're all just trying to stay sane in 2020 and you know, have these ties to our past, which sort of ground us and get us through these stressful times. I think it's important to use these family heirloom pieces. And, you know, maybe you don't have family heirlooms, but you can certainly find gorgeous china and flatware um, at just very reasonable prices by going to estate sales or garage sales. So you don't have to invest a lot of money to create just a beautiful tablescape. You can, you know, collect plates over time by going to garage sales or looking online. I bought some beautiful um, Fostoria glasses for a few dollars So you don't have to spend a lot of money to create just a beautiful tablescape. And this person who has just this lovely white china, I mean, the sky is the limit um, as far as how you can change it up. So, you know, it's like starting with this blank slate. And I usually do prefer having the dinner plate white. I just think Uh the food looks really pretty on it. Agreed. Um, and then using yeah. the more patterned pieces for
0: your salad and dessert plates. So, yeah, I feel like she should just kind of forget that it has the silver band and just treat it like a white plate. Like, you know, just I feel like that's a blo- a mental block for her. So, just pretend like it's a normal white true. plate, put gold on it, put colors on it, you know, do another china or do another or do just like porcelain or something that you get, you know. Like and a, stick a, that
3: plate, stick a salad plate in your backpack and go to the garage sale. Like, you know what I mean? Carry it around with you and layer it mm-hmm. up with the other stuff. I, I, Y'all, I did this just like literally last week in our own store. I had some china that I was trying to kind of just sort of make it feel a little more youthful. And I put, took the plate with me into the store and walked around and said like, what feels good with this? And it just saves you the trouble of having to do a return or regretting it later. Just carry that little salad plate around with you and, you know, feel it out. You're going to be surprised by what feels good with it. You know, you'll just put it there and you'll be like, oh, I like it. It's nice. Yeah.
0: I also feel like pewter could be a good choice for her like get a pewter charger and like a pewter napkin ring. yeah then add the gold so then at least you have like another silver thing in there mm-hmm. i mean i don't well, flatware's we gonna be silver with already
3: you know like debbie's saying so you're probably gonna have silver flatware in your silver plate so sure. maybe you need two gold things you know maybe you need a gold plate and then you need like a, a goblet that has a gold edge or something you know what i mean mm-hmm. just so it doesn't feel lonely
1: <laughs> right Right. it's really the whole package like you said because tables are just so layered it's never no. just the plate yeah. yeah or maybe it's your salt shaker you know maybe you have a little yeah. fun little gold something
3: you know yeah. partridge or something which we sell <laughs> by the way
0: yeah. enjoy, <laughs> enjoy. Interesting. interesting suggestion karen well, well, I, was I was looking at it <laughs> the <other> <laughs> <You know? laughs> they are cute little partridges they're very cute oh <laughs>
3: But you never know, like, you know, when you put things together, you'll feel it. And and don't feel weird about dragging your stuff around with you when you go. Oh, no, I am that person Mm -mm. who
2: drags the plates around. It's so important to me. Mm -hmm. Uh, Yeah, I took a plate into a store because I wanted to make sure that I was buying cloth napkins that would match the colors on the plate. So, yeah, um, exactly right. (laughs) It's
0: very normal. do yes. <laughs> We would all do it. All three we of us. We would all do it. it. Cut from 100%. the same cloth. <laughs> mm-hmm. Well, thank you so much, Debbie. Or, well, first off, thank you, um, Jay- Jay- Jamie. Good question. Your but Thank you, Debbie, for answering it for us and for um, sharing all of your wisdom with us. Oh,
2: it was so much fun. Obviously, I love talking about beautiful things. So I
3: enjoy it. I can't it. wait to
2: come to your shop in Nashville after
1: I we know. get COVID restrictions yes.
0: lifted. Exactly. I'm excited come to come to check it. it out.
1: I will. We we'd love, would we'd love to.
0: Can you tell everyone where to find you and follow you and see all of your your work and come visit your your showrooms? Um, you can find
2: our website. It's com, And then Instagram is, we have two different accounts, I think I mentioned. So one is Debbie Matthews Antiques, and Matthews just has one T. <laughs> it's Debbie with an IE. And then um, our other Instagram is Debbie Matthews
0: Designs. And if you find one, you can find the other right. because they're. They mention each other. So, yeah. Yes. And then you can find us on Cherish as well.
2: So, yes, please feel free to reach out if you ever have any questions about antiques. Um, we'd love to help you.
0: Wonderful. And that's our show. You can find all of the show notes on our blog, howtodecorate.com slash podcast.
1: To send in a decorating dilemma, email your questions to valordesigns.net so we can help you with your space. And of course, follow us on social media at Ballard Designs. And don't forget to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts so you never miss
3: an episode. And please leave us a review. We'd love to hear your feedback. Until next time, happy happy decorating. decorating!